0: the end of Paul's third missionary journey here, Um, beginning to read there at verse 1. When the uproar had ended, in Ephesus that is, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, from Pyrrhus, uh, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But as we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others in Troas where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. Who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on? <laughs> when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread, and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. These are interesting and challenging times for our leaders here. uh, These last two or three years, we have been struggling prayerfully, I think. I'll, I'll maybe give up on that radio mic. Guys, and just uh, rely on this one, if that's all right. Um, for two or three years, we've been struggling prayerfully with the question of uh, vision for the the church's future. What does God want of this community? What might His specific plans for us be? We're going to be thinking about that a little bit later in our address today. What's God calling Kirkpatrick Memorial to in 2017? We've talked about that. We'll probably need to keep talking about that uh, for some time. But this morning we're also coming to the end of this series in the book of Acts. Uh, It's not the end of the book, but it is the end of this series of studies. We've been looking at the middle chapters of Acts, uh, particularly Paul's missionary journeys. It's a a brilliant season in the life of the early church where they learn to give away uh, the life that they have found uh, to cities all around the Roman Empire. Rather than committing all of our time to this material in chapter 20, I'd prefer to to have a quick look at chapter 20, but then zoom back out and see what the, the chunk of scripture from chapters 13 to 20 as a whole might have to teach us. Chapter 20, you can split very easily into three parts. I'll just signpost them and uh, we'll move through them very, very quickly. The first seven verses are effectively Paul's itinerary for his journey as he heads towards home. It's it's a bit like one of those time-lapse videos that people can do nowadays where they can show a lot of time in a very short period. Those Those first verses cover a lot of time and a lot of travel. So Paul at the start of chapter 20 is in Ephesus, but he works his way from Ephesus all the way round northern Greece, back down to Corinth, and then all the way back by the time we get to chapter, or verse 8 in in Troas, or verse 7 I should say. So Paul's on this return journey Although Luke is going full speed ahead, he's not really stopping to tell us anything. He does pause for a moment in Troas to tell us about an incident that happened there. It's one of the great Bible stories. I mean, I loved this story as a kid. This, you know, some stories from Sunday school just stick out in your head. The, the story where the guy fell asleep during the sermon, fell out the window, and died—like that—is just brilliant. That it's classic Bible story territory. Um, after a lifetime of enjoying that story for relatively trivial reasons, um, I had another chance this week to pause on it and see: well, why is it there? What what's the point? I think Luke is painting a picture here uh, that might help us understand why Eutychus uh, struggled that night to stay awake. He gives us a few details which had been lost on me before. He says that Paul talked until midnight. It's a dark room, many lamps burning. So it's, it's a long session, low lighting, fumes in the room, like that's not a, If you're running a, a discipleship group, I don't, I don't suggest this kind of a setting if you want people to, to stick with you any length of time. N- no wonder people are nodding off here. So Luke tells us a little bit about what it's like in that gathering, but he, but he also gives us a context in which it was happening. Why did Paul speak so long in Troas? Well, it's, it's, it's his last night with these guys. Later on in the chapter, he tells the Ephesian elders that he doesn't expect to see them ever again. I'm sure the same probably holds true here. He doesn't know that he's ever going to see these guys again. And he wants to be with them. And they want to be with him. I think it's a a beautiful picture, actually, of this early church. It's a beautiful picture of a pastor and his people. They want to be together. The final part of the chapter, the part that we haven't read here today, I think I think adds another Uh, Another layer to, to what we're just saying here about pastor and people because we're told there about Paul and some of his friends from the church in Ephesus the elders from the church in Ephesus we're told verse 18 that as he's traveling towards Jerusalem he arrives in the seaport of Miletus and sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church As the crow flies, it's about 30 miles from Miletus up to Ephesus, but the road doesn't go as the crow flies, and these guys are traveling pretty slowly. So who knows? might have taken three days or more to send a message to Ephesus and for these guys to come and to meet Paul. It's a huge investment. Can you imagine taking three days out of your itinerary to meet with somebody? That's what's happening here. It's a huge investment. It's obviously a huge priority for Paul and for these elders from Ephesus. These guys, um, he'd been with them for three years as their pastor, their teacher, and they'd become dear friends. In effect, Paul says three things to them, and I'll I'll summarize it. We're not going to dwell on it at all. He says, I've been committed to preaching the whole gospel, he says, I've been willing to suffer for Jesus Christ and then I want to see you replace me. We're not going to dwell on this today in any great depth. But again, it's a, just a lovely picture of this early church and the, the pastor, Paul, their church leader. Someone who's committed to the gospel, who's willing to suffer for Christ and he's longing To raise other people up. To take his place. What will we do with this stuff? Troas. Ephesus. Maybe just to remember how. God has drawn our lives together. How we are to love one another. Maybe. As Paul had such a, a wonderful relationship with his church. We we recognize the place of leaders in our community. We are glad to develop our relationships with them, to pray with them and for them. Throw your eyes down to the bottom of chapter 20 there just before we finish in this chapter. Luke tells us that when Paul said this, he knelt down with them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. You don't get that if your church life is an institutional thing only. These depths of relationships are only for people who commit themselves to community. As I said in my introduction, I want to spend most of our time this morning zooming out, looking at chapters 13 to 17 and trying to see if there's anything that God has taught us here see if there's any help for this question what kind of a church do we need to be in 2017 early in our series we noticed some traits of the churches that Paul was planting, they were first of all centered on the gospel Paul gathered all sorts of people in all sorts of places but he never gathered them on any other basis than around Jesus Christ The one who had died for us, who had been raised ahead of us, and who is now our Lord and Master in all things. That's the only thing that Paul ever preached and gathered people around. A second thing about Paul's church is they were context sensitive. That means different places had a different kind of a message, a different way of talking about the gospel of Jesus, and a different community that emerges. So, whenever Paul talks to a majority Jewish audience, in say, Pisidian Antioch, he talks about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, how he is Israel's hope. But whenever he preaches in Athens, he doesn't pull out the same sermon and and share it with the crowd there. He preaches a very different sermon. He he talks about their spirituality. Points out that it's uh, an idolatry and points them instead to the true and the living God. So, Paul's churches are gospel centred, they're context sensitive, and there's a third aspect of Paul's church planting that we haven't talked about yet much in this series. And we want to spend a few moments today uh, as we close the series. Paul's church planting was city focused. Whenever you read Acts chapters 13 to 20, you can't help but notice, uh, as soon as you see it, that Paul focuses all of his attention on the cities of the Roman Empire. Pretty much ignores the countryside and he focuses on the cities. It's not because Paul doesn't love the country or love people who live in the countryside There are different reasons for that. His reasons are strategic. Remember chapter 16, on his second missionary journey, we we noticed at one point that Paul was working in in modern-day Greece. He was trying to go in various different directions. The Spirit kept saying, no, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. And then he had the vision of the man in Macedonia. Paul sensed that God was calling him, to Macedonia to come and to to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ there. But that's all he was told. Macedonia is a big place. So if you've been called to Macedonia, where do you go? We're told in chapter 16 verse 12 that Paul chose to go to Philippi, a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Paul knew that the way to reach Macedonia was to reach Philippi. Once he'd brought some people to Jesus in Philippi, once he had established a, a good, healthy church there, Paul moved on. Why? Because as far as he was concerned, his work was done. If I reach Philippi, I've reached Macedonia. Reach the city, and you reach the culture. Why might this be? Why why? Did it make sense for Paul to prioritize cities in his ministries? Well, there are a number of factors, I think, that make cities an important place to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thing is the mobility that we find in cities. People come to cities from all over. They come for education and they come from work. It's true that they leave cities as well, And both of these things make cities very strategic for sharing the gospel. If you point people to Christ in the city, then you'll always encounter new people who are coming to the city and who could meet Jesus. You'll also always be sending people who have encountered Jesus back to other places. The same isn't true of the countryside. As well as mobility, there's openness Test this in your own mind, whether what I'm saying here is true, whether urban contexts don't often foster an openness uh, more so than rural contexts do. It's hard to work out why exactly this is. Quite often when you move to a city, you're, you're in some sort of flux or turmoil. Uh, your life's changing. So think of the times when you've moved That's a moment in your life when you're ready to meet new people, encounter new ideas, and of course that's a a very winsome or a very opportune moment for the gospel. It's it's very possible that cities, just by their diversity, just create an openness for ideas and possibilities that isn't easy to replicate in rural settings. So, mobility, openness, and a third factor, there's The influence that gathers and flows from cities. In any culture, the government, the law, the arts, the administration tends to be uh, centered in the city. So if you reach a city with its leaders, its lawyers, its teachers, its artists, they're very well placed to influence the whole of that culture. The, the influence flows from the city to the whole of the culture. The same simply isn't true of, of the countryside. So think for a second about Northern Ireland. Imagine the city of Belfast transformed as more and more of the citizens of the city are converted to Christ. Where's Northern Ireland going if that's the case? Isn't it likely that our whole culture could begin a journey to, to Jesus? But what if the, the city is becoming increasingly pagan? The, the people at the, the heart of all of our institutions are moving away from God. Wouldn't we expect our entire culture then to follow suit? The best way to reach a culture is to reach its cities. Because then the stuff that people encounter when they come to the city is drawing them closer to Jesus. And when they leave the city, they're, they're bringing Jesus with him wherever they go. It might just be that the best way to reach Ballanderi or Belachy or Ballina Mallard is to reach Belfast. So if we're going to be a biblical, missional church, we should be aspiring to be gospel-centered, context-sensitive, but also to be longing to reach our major cities for Jesus. In Ireland, we are talking about Belfast. We're talking about Dublin. I don't think that that's too much of a leap to take that idea away from what we've been reading these last few months together in the book of Acts. There's an objection when you share this kind of a vision in a context like ours in Ireland in 2017, and you might be voicing it just right now. You might be saying to yourself, we don't need any more churches in Belfast right now. Belfast is full of churches. Most of them are emptying. So what on earth do we need more new or different churches for. We don't need to be planting churches these days in the post-Christian West. At first glance, it seems like that would be a hard argument to refute. But I think in practice it misses far too much of what actually happens in church dynamics. What happens when churches are renewed when new churches are planted and the effects that that can have. Here are four good reasons why rejuvenating or planting churches rejuvenates the whole church. How church planting rejuvenates all churches. Church planting or rejuvenating reaches new kinds of people. I don't know if you remember... I can't remember myself when it was, but we showed a video a while back of Village Church, uh, a new church plant about a mile down the Newtonards Road, just above Hollywood Arches. That church reaches people that I don't think we're reaching. So that's brilliant. I'm delighted that Village Church is there. Sometimes it takes new churches to reach the people that the old churches have failed to reach. Secondly, planting new churches renews older churches. Uh, Tim Keller tells uh, of his experience with this. So he went to New York. Um, at a time when there weren't a whole lot of evangelical Bible-teaching churches in Manhattan. And Redeemer, the church at which he was minister, began to grow very substantially. But that had a really interesting effect. It meant that some of the other churches, established mainline, as they call them in the U.S., churches, who were maybe not growing or maybe uh, shrinking, the next time their pulpit went vacant they were wondering, well, Flip, how do you grow a church nowadays in New York? Redeemer is growing. What did they do? So they go and ask a few questions. What did they do? And the question that comes back is one that surprises them, and they don't really know what to do with it. What they do at Redeemer is that they preach the gospel and try to teach people how to follow Jesus. And a very interesting thing happens. You have churches who aren't, particularly inclined to do either of those things, starting to say, let's try and do that. Let's try and find somebody who'll come here, preach the gospel, and invite us to follow Jesus. Whenever one church is renewed in a neighborhood, it can have a really catalyst, catalytic effect on other churches in that neighborhood, particularly if the growing church has a, an open Uh, approach to how it deals with its neighbors. Third, Third reason for planting new churches. New churches allow new ideas. Have you ever been in a church that struggled to see the future? Or the present even? Or anything more up to date than about 50 or 100 years ago? A lot of us have. We know what that's like. Sometimes it takes a new community to be birthed that doesn't carry that extraordinary historical baggage. A place where people get to work out what it means to follow Jesus in these times in which we live. They do it, and the rest of us get to notice and sometimes copy, if that's the right thing to do. New churches birth new ideas just a fourth thing for now I'm sure there are more we could have added to this list new churches grow new leaders whenever a church gets too big there's a glass ceiling on how many people get to use their gifts and to lead us in that variety of ways whenever churches are smaller it's different everybody gets to play their part everybody gets to join in I've noticed that recently going to a visit with our team down in Clarewood. There are people in Clarewood leading church services, leading children's ministries, and they're brilliant. They're members of our church family, and they never led here. We didn't know what they could do. They didn't know what they could do. Until they were given the opportunity, new churches raise up new leaders. When you see all this folks, when you see all these uh, both the, the reasons for planting and rejuvenating churches, the the wonderful positive effects that can come when it's done, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why isn't there more of it going on well. It doesn't take too long, probably, to come up with the answer. It's because of people like me. Church leaders who aren't willing to give away anything that they imagine they hold. Not willing to give away any people, any leaders, any money that people have in their churches. they imagine that the best thing to do in life is to hold on to what you've got it's precisely the opposite of what we see in the book of Acts that flow of life from the church in Antioch through Paul, Barnabas, Silas all the others always looking to give their life away I say the reason churches don't do this is because of the heart of its leaders Actually, that, that's not the case here. Because as we've said to you a number of times recently, our leadership here has begun a journey. We've decided as a Kirk Session that giving our life away is one of our values as a church, every bit as much as the likes of the Bible and prayer, parish and the world. Giving life away, letting the life that God's given us flow to other people, is becoming a big priority for us. Why would that be? Well, it's because of the gospel. Because we believe the gospel. We have nothing we believe. Absolutely nothing that hasn't been given to us. Anything that we have, we have only because a gracious Father gives us his beautiful Son and says, there it is. Forgiveness freedom from condemnation, life, my spirit, it's all yours and it's all a gift. You did nothing for any of this. You might say, well, any Christian church could say that. Why Kirkpatrick Memorial in 2017? I think it's, it's something to do with the reality that more than most churches, we have a sense of being brought from death to life. It's around 14 years since I first got to know Ballyhackamore Hackamore and Kirkpatrick Memorial. This wee church that was at that stage on life support, dying a slow death. Lots of people thought the next step was simply to pull out the plug, put it out of its misery. A few people didn't. They prayed and they dreamed that God would one day do something new again here in this place, that people would find new life in Jesus Christ. They believed that this church could be rejuvenated. And 14 years later, God's answered that prayer and some of those dreams are being realized. Ever since I saw that beginning to happen, I I had a sense of a new question. The question was no longer, can this thing live? The question was, why this one? Why, Lord, have you given us this new life? Why do this miracle in Kirkpatrick Memorial? Is this just for us? So that we can have a nice Christian community in our neighborhood? Something nice to bring our kids up in? Is that what this is about? I don't believe that. I can't believe that for even one moment. Not while so many people in Belfast are turning away from Jesus Christ in these very times in which we live. Not while our province is increasingly lost without him. What is God calling Kirkpatrick Memorial to in 2017? We believe that he's calling us to learn to give our life away. This life that he's given us, just to look, to discern, to use wisdom, and to see where God could use us to bring life to others beyond ourself. We want to share what God's given us so that others can find life in him. folks I've shared that our elders have talked with me more about that than we have had a chance to do as a congregation so I ask you as I share that and probably will harp on about it a little bit in the days ahead I ask you do you understand that if not come and talk to me but I ask you another question are you with us Because this isn't just about me or a small group of elders. This is us as a church. Can this heart be your heart too? Let's pray. Lord, we know from your word that the gospel of Jesus is something we don't Hold so much as we pass on. Jesus, when you were among us, you were constantly on the move, always looking for new people to whom you could share the good news of the gospel, whom you could invite to repent and believe. Lord, this look at this part of your your word, this early church, we see how relentlessly committed they were, to, to bringing the good news of Jesus to new places. Lord, I'm not asking for anything unusual here today other than that by your Spirit you'd come and you'd give us the same heart too.